Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Robin Sertel on surviving and forgiving her mother's attempt to abort her. This is a real everyday occurrence. So no matter if it's, you know, if you look at the Canadian numbers and apply them to the U.S., or you look at what Dr. Cates released in 1981, there are at minimum tens of thousands of us, likely much more, likely closer to hundreds of thousands. The problem is, because there is no federal born alive bill that has been, become law to provide for reporting and care of those babies, just like any other baby, we don't know how many have died in those horrific circumstances right after their birth and how many are still alive. Robin Sertel, next. Robin Sertel experienced numerous severe health problems as a child. When she was nine, her grandmother explained these challenges could be traced back to her mother's attempts to abort her. It took years to arrive at this point, but Robin eventually came to forgive her mother. Today, she is Education Coordinator for Abortion Survivors Network. Her story was featured recently in World Magazine. She'll be appearing at a number of marches for life, including the national one later this month in Washington, D.C. Robin, please tell us about the circumstances of your birth. Sure. So the circumstances around my birth obviously were not known to me for many years, but from what I came to learn years later, uh, my mother was not interested in having a child. She was married, had a great career, uh, was very focused on that and really just viewed the pregnancy, even though it was in a, a a marriage and they had a nice home and both worked at the same high school. She and my dad were at odds about how that pregnancy was viewed. Dad was very uh, interested in having a child. Mom was not. So mom went three separate times to try to terminate my life via saline infusion abortion. So for any listeners who are not aware of what that entails, uh, a deep needle is inserted through the mother's tummy into the womb. Some of that life-giving amniotic fluid is drawn off. It is then replaced with a toxic solution. It's very salty. It's meant to kill the baby by scalding the baby uh, inside and out. So, of course, the skin and hair and everything is affected, the eyes, fingernails, toenails. But also the baby then gulps some of that fluid down. And so it burns everything inside uh, in the digestive tract. Normally, mom will go back within about 72 hours max. Labor is induced and a dead child is expelled from the mother. In my case, they went back and they found signs of life. And that process was repeated a second time. And then a third time. So I guess I was a little bit more stubborn than mm -hmm. that same uh, solution. And, uh, you know, maybe three times more stubborn. Uh, my mom was very interested in keeping her figure. So I've also heard from the lady who was her best friend during that time, as well as uh, her mother, my Grammy, that mom was doing so many sit-ups on a daily basis during the pregnancy that even when she carried me to full term, she didn't look at all pregnant. She still had a flat stomach. Mm. 
So uh, not a lot of care was involved in, uh, you know, me in utero. I understand that um, she also, you know, was, was just very well convinced by the time I was born that I was not going to be born alive. So when she came to the hospital to deliver me, there was no bag packed, no layette, there was no name picked out, absolutely zero intention of bringing home a live child. They didn't know I was still alive in there. So when she gave birth in Methodist Hospital in Philadelphia, which is where I was born, uh, it was much uh, a shock, much to her chagrin, uh, that I, I kind of came out kicking and screaming. So my dad is reported as being in the room pleading as you would with maybe a young puppy that you'd find and decide to bring home and go, oh, can we keep her? Can we keep her? Dad won. Uh, so <laughs> very grateful for dad. And apparently mom looked over at the window ledge, a little bird landed there in the morning light. And so she said, fine, name it Robin Dawn. And that's my name. And how you came to find out about that that was through your grandmother. Do I understand that correctly? Originally, yes, the, the, the circumstances? Mm -hmm. I was very close with my Grammy on my mom's side. And so at age nine, I was in the hospital. I had been very sick off and on all throughout childhood. I had uh, grand mal seizures. I had a variety of other different issues with hair, skin, nails, digestive tract, endocrine, you name it. Um, and so... I was in the hospital and I was actually pronounced dead on uh, Elmer Hospital. I came to, was surrounded by a number of medical personnel, but just outside of where I could hear, and I believe it was just outside the room, I heard my Grammy and my mom kind of having a heated discussion. And Grammy came in later and said, look, um, you know, we understand you can read and you're brilliant. You're going to learn this. It's on your medical record. Um, the reason you're so sick is not a mystery, although the doctors have kind of said they're not sure what's going on. And so I always thought I was mysteriously ill. We never understood why. She said, no, it's not a mystery at all. The reason is your mother tried three times to abort you. She tried to burn you out with the saline. At age nine, that's not really a vocabulary word. So I didn't understand what abortion was. I didn't understand what the saline was. And so... I didn't really get it until years later, but I kind of tucked that away in my mental file, if you will. And my understanding, Robin, is that this is somewhat typical of abortion survivors. You are the education coordinator for Abortion Survivors Network, so you've been in contact with a, a number of them. In other words, um, poor health or health, significant health challenges uh, sure. early on in life. Certainly. So normally a mom would take extra caution and extra care during a pregnancy, right? They would eat right. They would try to limit, you know, external stressors, you know, mm -hmm. take very good care of themselves. If there's any uh, alcohol use or tobacco use, they, you know, cessation methods are, are, you know, highly recommended. And so when you have the opposite of that happening, of course, there's an opposite effect. So abortion survivors that we've connected with in the network, uh, so far, we've connected with well over 600 worldwide. I have the honor of helping other survivors learn how to use their voice and go out and do interviews and share their story. Um, and so it's 
very common that abortion survivors do have a number of physical as well as emotional uh, ramifications because they receive so much trauma in the womb. Well, my guest today on His People is Robin Sertal, and as I mentioned, she is Education Coordinator for Abortion Survivors Network. She is an abortion survivor herself. Uh, at what point, Robin, did you have a—this would be a difficult thing to broach, but a conversation with your mother about this? I had a conversation with my mother about this in my early 20s during my pregnancy with my oldest child. I felt the need to give mom a call and try to reconnect with her after a number of years of a disconnected relationship. And I really felt prompted to forgive her. I did not yet know the Lord. I wouldn't come to know the Lord until later, but I can look back now and say he was definitely in this. And so I basically told mom, I don't understand why you've made the choices you have. I don't agree with, you know, the things you've done, but I want you to know you don't owe me anything. I forgive you. And I could literally feel the atmosphere changing on both ends of the phone. And that really began the process of us trying to connect our relationship as best we could. And, And it really was quite a shift in my entire life and in hers. So it was a beautiful time of, uh, reconciliation. Did she ask you what you were referring to, or did she say, "Are you referring to the abortion?" I mean, did she did she clarify it what you were at, what you were forgiving her for? She didn't at the time. Uh, we had follow up conversations later where there was some clarification, and she she knew she knew exactly what I was talking about. It was always this unspoken elephant in the room. Uh, And that is also very common for abortion survivors. There's a lot of shame surrounding abortion. And so when we meet, you know, moms who have lost babies to abortion and moms who have abortion survivors as their children, there's always a lot of shame, a lot of family secrets. And so we are very used to working with survivors now that, yeah, this is challenging at best to talk about sometimes completely off the table there are a lot of families that they won't talk about it at all my family is pretty close to that line Uh, i would get information from my grammy from my mom's best friend from my dad from my grandpa before he passed but mom oh she was never really up for much discussion we had a couple follow-up conversations but it was really like okay you forgave me we're good right so just leave that alone how about your dad? So you say he he was able to talk about it with you to some extent? Dad and I were very, very close until he passed away about eight years ago, but he was very open to discussing it and uh, how that played out. He was the one that was there for me growing up. I spent a lot of time in Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and dad was the one who would visit. Dad would uh, sneak me quarter pounders when I wasn't mm. supposed to eat anything. <laughs> dad was kind of my cheerleader and my my best friend through a lot of that time. And mom was not very present for most of that. And, and of course, learning this information from your grandmother, I think you mentioned at age nine, w- what effect did that have on you uh, going forward? As you said, you didn't, uh, you know, verbally uh, forgive your mom uh, until your 20s. I mean, where you communicated it to her. So you lived with this knowledge, even though you were able to talk to your dad about it and your grandmother. But what kind of effect did it have on you uh, as you grew up, as you, you know, went through, you know, your teenage years and all that? Teenage years were hard. You know, they're hard for any kid. I remember feeling quite a bit different than other kids. Uh, Felt a ton of um, rejection. I felt 
a lot of shame. I felt very much alone. And I spun out and I did a lot of the things that teenagers do to try to uh, cope with that. I, I fell into the drug and alcohol crowd. I made a lot of poor choices early on in life. And so uh, it really kind of was the impetus for me kind of going off into left field for a little bit, just feeling totally alone and uh, like, why why bother? Why am I here? I dealt with a lot of depression and things like that. And so it, it really was a great turning point for me in my early 20s when I came to Christ because I finally had hope and I understood that um, regardless of my mom's choices, it was Daddy God who had made me in his image and I was his choice. Now, I'm wondering, too, in terms of the Abortion Survivors Network, Robin, you're the education coordinator. Do we have any idea? Uh, I, I don't know what kind of statistics are kept, or perhaps it's just through your own contacts there. How many people similar to yourself who survived abortions who are alive today, walking That's and great. talking and living normal lives? So... In 1981, the director of the CDC's head of surveillance for abortion, uh, Dr. Willard Cates, released numbers that he believed four to 500 babies survive abortions on an annual basis mm. in the U.S. Do the math, that comes to about 20,000-ish by today, just in the U.S., just from legalized abortion. Now that doesn't count all the other, you know, back alley abortions, pre-row, post-row, that doesn't include uh, a lot of the chemical at home abortions, which are not really tallied up. So we don't know. So we would say there are at least tens of thousands of us. That's just in the US. Recently, uh, head of our research at the Abortion Survivors Network has looked at the numbers that Canada sends out, which Canada does report out its numbers of abortion survivors. And they've taken that data and uh, extrapolated it and applied it to the population density and number of abortions that we believe are happening in the different states in the U.S. That looks more like hundreds of thousands of abortion survivors. The problem is when a baby is born alive after abortion here in the U.S., with the exception of a handful of states, there is no law that says that abortion survivors must be cared for. Mm. Thankfully, my dad was in the room and he pled for my life. But normally that call goes to the abortionist. The abortionist then is looking at trying to hide the evidence of a botched job. So many nurses have come out and reported that they have had to lay the baby aside. They're put into medical waste they are killed after they're born. We hear of babies being set on um, steel tables and just left alone until they can't fight for their own life anymore. These are horrific events. These are very traumatic. I've gone out and shared my story and had nurses come up to me afterwards. I've heard nurses share, you know, in public testimony. This is a real everyday occurrence. So no matter if it's, you know, if you look at the Canadian numbers and apply them to the U.S., or you look at what Dr. Cates released in 1981, there are at minimum tens of thousands of us, likely much more, likely closer to hundreds of thousands. The problem is because there is no federal born alive bill that has been, become law to provide for reporting and care of those babies just like any other baby, 
We don't know how many have died in those horrific circumstances right after their birth and how many are still alive. There's no reporting requirement, so it's hard to tell. But, um, you know, we know there are many of us worldwide and, uh, you know, we we get to connect with as many uh, as hear our voice. I'm always excited when I have an interview because usually shortly after we'll be connected uh, at the network with someone who's reached out and said, hey, I survived an abortion and I thought I was the only one. So if that's you listening today, would you reach out to us at abortionsurvivors.org? We would love to hear from you. You have a family waiting to just... Um, love on you and help you through the emotional and physical trauma that you have experienced. Robin, um, do when people hear this, I, I'm wondering, have you, th th maybe this is a common response. Do people have trouble believing, I mean, that, that there are abortion survivors? Absolutely. I have had, um, in my own life, I've had a number of people, including my own doctor, uh, hmm. And, and again, it's on my medical record. So I literally had a doctor tell me, well, uh, I see here it says on your medical record that you're a survivor of abortion attempts. And I don't believe that's a thing. So I'm just going to take this right off of here. Hmm. I said, now, wait a minute, buddy. If you didn't believe it in broken legs and I came in with a broken leg, would you take that off of there too? <laughs> you don't get to do that. <laughs> you know, I know I, I spent way too many years in and out of the hospital with strange illnesses. I know the stories that came through my family. I know what's on my medical record. And um, so I, I kind of have that to back up what's on my medical record. So, you know, I, I think the saying, the a person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument it certainly applies but it is it's very challenging because it's not something we hear about normally so it's not on a lot of people's mental map if you will mm -hmm. and, and it is it's very interesting i was tabling for our organization in denver at the catholic medical association's annual conference uh just a few months ago and I sat next to a gentleman who was a pro-life OBGYN, had been very strong voice in the uh, pro-life movement for 30 years. He's with Applog and he's uh, finally gets up at lunchtime, you know, shakes my hand. Hi, how are you doing? And he says, so what do you do here? And he's looking at the name on the tablecloth, you know, of, of our network. And he says, abortion survivors network well that's interesting a lot of ladies you know after they have abortions they want to come together so that's great what you're doing this is understand we were the babies not the moms and he just stopped in his tracks and i thought that was very telling we we followed up and spoke later he was floored he's been in the pro-life movement uh you know a believer and you know an OBGYN, so a gynecologist for all these years didn't know we were a thing and he had a hard time believing it hmm. i actually pulled up my medical records on my phone app which you can do these days mm -hmm. and i showed it to him and he just you know wide-eyed and and kind of a little floored and he just he gave me his business card and said how can i help what can i do and i said help us spread the word because people need to know we are the um the dreaded complication if you will we are what the abortion industry really wants to keep quiet because if babies survive abortions, then, well, that kind of throws the clump of cells argument right out the window, uh, you know? <laughs> yep. 
Well, Robin, our time is going very quickly. Thank you so much for being with us. My guest is Robin Sertel. She's Education Coordinator for the Abortion Survivors Network. And Robin, of course, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe versus Wade in what's become known as the, or what was known, is known as the Dobbs decision uh, back mm-hmm. in uh, June, uh, June 24th of 2022. So what were your thoughts, your your reaction when you when you first heard that that news uh it was very much elated uh it's a wonderful thing to live in a country finally that doesn't have a blanket federal law on the books that says it's legal to kill me uh that is is something that was common to abortion survivors even across the world we had abortion survivors in other countries that were rejoicing with us because of course the us is the bellwether for the world with Mm -hmm. things like this but it was also a little interesting the pro-choice people in uh, a lot of our families as survivors became very angry and the the pro-abortion folks were were looking to place blame And as we humanize abortion and we kind of put a face on abortion, a lot of us really were targeted and blamed. And so it was a time to really rally around one another and go, wow, you know, if we had that kind of pull, that'd be great. But I don't think we did. You're saying some in your own family sort of blamed you for Uh for this Supreme Court decision. Oh, yeah. Look what you did. But very grateful to see that that decision has been returned to the states. And so now we are rolling up our sleeves and jumping in and uh, working to develop and and get past some born alive legislation and some of these bills that will bring more of a culture of life on the state and federal level. I guess that's my question. Going forward, what are your hopes now? You're, you're continuing to speak and all of that, um, what are your hopes for the pro-life movement? Some people might be saying, well, this is Roe versus Wade is overturned. Obviously, it's not all over, but there may be a sense of relaxing and, uh, you know, maybe moving on to other things. You know, for me, the, the fight has just begun. For me, this is time to roll up our sleeves, get in here. We have a lot of work to do. Here in Montana, we just had a born alive bill that did not pass that was on our November ballot. It was known as Legislative Referendum 131. And the opposition was able to come in and really sow a lot of confusion and twist things. And so it showed me just on a, a, a small scale that we have a lot of work to be done because people didn't understand that babies survive abortions. And that to me is my life's calling. That's, that's a lot of uh, my, what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, I, I want to go out and help people to understand that and train and equip other survivors to do the same so that we can help educate people because there's been a lot of misinformation that's gone out there. And so that has helped to, uh, keep a lot of people in the dark about what abortion actually is, what the potential downsides of, of abortion could be. And so if we can educate and equip the general public, I think we, we are going a long way towards helping to make abortion unthinkable. Well, Robin, uh, you uh, continue to to speak on, as you said, you believe this is your life's calling, what you're doing. You're going to be speaking at State and National March for Life 
uh, events. Uh, they've been held around the, the time of the Roe versus Wade decision, January, uh, which was decided back in 1973. But because, now that it's been overturned, and I'll let you explain all of this. You, you told me before we did this interview that the, the marches may be held at a different time, but you are still participating. They're still taking place this month. It's going to be broadcast this month, this month of, of January. Tell us what, what you're going to be doing. Sure. So I will be at the State March for Life here in Montana. I'll be tabling for the Abortion Survivors Network and, of course, marching there. And at the Federal March, there will be a number of uh, meetups and gatherings. Uh, we'll, I'll be speaking also at the Flathead Valley March for Life on the 21st. So state is January 13th. Federal is January 20th. 20th with lead up gatherings starting the 18th. The Flathead Valley March for Life is going to be on the 21st. I'll be speaking there as well as the uh, March for Life in Billings, Montana for the Yellowstone Valley. I'll be speaking there as well. So if any of your listeners are inclined, I would so encourage you to come out. This is going to be an historic year for these marches. This is why we march, uh, to get out there and support a culture of life and to really lock arms. A lot of times we hear in the body of Christ, as well as the pro-life movement of a lot of these divisions and people working um, separately from one another. And our, our goal at the Abortion Survivors Network is to kind of come alongside other organizations and lock arms with you. And so if you are a an individual or a group who uh, is inclined to trying to create a culture of life, we would encourage you to come out. Let's lock arms and march together. Well, Robin, I know I've got to let you go here. You have children of your own. Is that right? Yes, I have two children, three grandchildren. Okay. And you are the education coordinator for Abortion Survivors Network. Is there a point at which uh, you recommend people bring up this subject with a young person, a child? Obviously, at some point, they're, they're, they're too young to understand this. It's too horrific to even explain it. But uh, it, when do you when do you suggest that this subject you know, might be broached? It's, I don't think it's a numerical age, but I think it's a level of um, understanding. And so we do have a whole department that is dedicated to helping um, biological and adoptive parents to make those decisions. We do have a number of resources available. So if you'll go to abortionsurvivors.org, you will find uh, some keys to helping you make those decisions. And you will find we have a wonderful support uh, crew who's available to help you to learn how to have those conversations. And I think it's awesome because now no nine-year-old has to feel like I did hearing, you know, you're an abortion survivor and you know, it's just you and you're kind of alone in this. And the sentiment I heard was, well, you know, it's a miracle you got this far, but you know, tomorrow's not promised. We don't really know what those procedures are going to do to you. So good luck. You mm. might make it another day. You, this might be your last. We don't really know. But now kids get to hear this couched in the comforting context of so sorry, this happened, but there are so many more of you and there's a whole group that's just waiting to embrace you and help you through this. And so we've got hundreds of people around the globe that are connected, and we know there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands more. So they get to have the comfort of that community. And we think that's going to really change the lives of a lot of young people. So 
If anyone is uh, thinking of having those conversations, I'd encourage you to reach out, grab those resources, connect with our intake department where they will walk you through how to decide when to have those conversations based on your unique circumstances. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Robin Sertel, Education Coordinator for Abortion Survivors Network. Go to abortionsurvivors.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Joel Beakey with an introduction to the Christian teaching and lifestyles of the Puritans. The heart of it is they wanted to live pure lives themselves to the glory of God. They wanted their families to live purely according to the scriptures. They wanted their church to be pure in worship. They wanted they wanted the nation to become pure in its morality and its lifestyle. So they were nicknamed Puritans derisively, mm-hmm. but after a while, they embraced the word, even though they didn't like it, because they said, we're not Puritans, we're just poor sinners saved by grace. But they became known as Puritans, and so that has, that has stuck. That's tomorrow, at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.